welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you for the opportunity to uh, come together. Lord, we thank you for freedom, God. We thank you for the ability to worship freely without uh, any opposition. And God, we ask that even as we come today in your presence, that you will meet all of us here today, that you will encounter every heart with your presence. God, we are believing for hearts to be changed and transformed in your glory. And God, we are believing for lives to be transformed, for people to leave this auditorium changed and transformed into your image. God, we say this is the pursuit of our lives to become more and more like you. We say this is the purpose of the pulpit ministry, to hear your word, to obey it, and to become more like you. We thank you for this great opportunity that we get to explore, get to hear from your word. We don't take it lightly. God, we ask that even as we listen, that your words will reside in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How many of you know that um, what is culturally acceptable may not always be biblical? What is culturally acceptable might not always be the biblical standard. It might be culturally acceptable for you to scream at a person who calls you on the phone and tries to sell you something or a telemarketer. It might be culturally acceptable for you to uh, no, scream at the service staff in order to get better service. It might be culturally acceptable for you to manipulate, for you to backstep, for you to uh, do some shady stuff in your, in your company in order to get ahead. It might be culturally acceptable, right? It might be okay, but it's not biblical. That making sense. We need to be on a pursuit to not just discover what is culturally acceptable, but discover what is on God's heart through the Bible. In John 15, it says this. It says that um, to the branches that do not bear fruit, he prunes, right? We're all familiar with this scripture. But then it goes on to say this. He says that you are clean or are pruned by the word that I've spoken to you. So if you can uh, develop some imagery, it, it might look like this. It might look like you having some opinions, okay? This is what's culturally acceptable. This is what common sense is. This is what education has taught me. This is what society has taught me. And you bring all these things to the Lord and with his word, he prunes you and begins to cut away these things that are not a part of his kingdom. That is how we're supposed to interact, how we're supposed to approach the word of God. The word of God is supposed to have the highest authority in our lives. Not what is culturally acceptable, not what is societal norm. The word of God has supreme authority in our lives. We are all familiar with the armor of God in Ephesians. It talks about the sword of spirit. And the sword of spirit, he calls it the word of God, right? And we often approach the armor of God as this, you know, the shield of faith is what you defend with and the sword of spirit is what you attack with, right? But if we read it in its cultural context and we you know, do a bit of research, we know that that sword of spirit is not a long, broad sword. It's not a katana. It's not a... Curvy blade, it's not, you know, the Mulan Han Yu blade. It's, it does not look anything like that. But that sword is actually a short Roman dagger. And the purpose of the dagger is this when a Roman soldier goes into battle, okay, he fights, and then there are archers, and 
arrows will be flying at him. And if these arrows get past his shield and actually pierce him, the purpose of the dagger is not to attack. The purpose of the dagger is to dig out these arrows from the body of the person. That which pulls out these arrows is associated with the word of God. Interesting that the lies of the enemy are often associated to fiery darts. The fiery darts, the arrows of the enemies. The word of God looks like this, you know, it looks like when the enemy confronts you with certain lies, when society, when the cultural norm seems to suggest a different thing, it gets past your faith and it pierces you, you take the word of God and you begin to address these arrows and you begin to dig it out. Am I making sense? I think that's some good stuff. The word of God has to have supreme authority in our lives, supreme lordship in our lives. Now, I, I, I remember this, uh, this uh, story in the Bible where Jesus um, heals a man on the Sabbath. And he, in some way, violates the law of that day by working, by healing on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees got up in arms. They were like, who is this man? Why is he healing on the Sabbath? And, you know, you, you read in some translations, it talks about the Pharisees asking this question to where did he get that authority from? Who is his Lord? Like, where does he come from? And Jesus was presented with these questions from the Pharisees because he healed on the Sabbath. Like, who are you? Why are you doing this? And where do you come from? Who's your allegiance to? What gives you the ability and the right to do these things on the Sabbath? And then Jesus, in classic Jesus fashions, gives a one-liner statement. He says, I only do what I see my father doing. I only do what I see my father doing. In response to the question of who he was, why he was there, and what gave him the ability and the authority to do these things, he responded by saying, I only do what I see my father doing. Bill Johnson then uh, comes out this statement to describe this whole story. He says this, says that Jesus never lived in reaction to the devil. He lived only in response to the father. That means in every circumstance, in every situation, in every scenario, he wasn't deterred, he wasn't uh, influenced by the circumstance, but he looked to heaven and saw what, was the far, what the Father was doing, and he modeled it and displayed it on the earth. Here's my suggestion to you this morning. I know what kingdom you are a part of by what your response is to a matter. Your response is oftentimes the most adequate expression of who is your Lord. That making sense? Your response will often reveal what your belief systems are, what your value systems are. That making sense? I know how mature a person is in Christ by how he or she responds to a situation. I know to what degree the Lordship of Jesus is manifested in a person by how he or she responds to a situation. And I think that's the goal of the Christian faith. The Bible says this, the Bible commands us to seek first the kingdom of God. And we often approach the kingdom as something to do with a place or an eventual uh, inheritance that we walk into. But here's what the word kingdom means. Kingdom doesn't only mean the king's domain. It means this, kingdom means the king's dominion, his lordship. Seek first the king's dominion and all these things will be added unto you. 
The goal of the Christian faith is to have more of the Lordship of Jesus established in my life. That looks like Him being granted more access to more areas of my life, Him having a higher authority, Him having more say in my life. When we first got saved, the Lordship of Jesus might have extended to He has your Sunday mornings. He has control of your schedule. The Lordship of Jesus equals He got Sunday. But as we mature in the Lord, as we grow in faith, the Lordship of Jesus, that territory, if you will, is supposed to extend, broaden, and enlarge in our lives. More and more of the Lordship of Jesus in my life. And I know to what degree the Lordship of Jesus has influenced you by how you respond to situations. That making sense? Romans 12 says, Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world. We as Christians, ought to be different from the world. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Relevance to the world is not becoming like the world. It's becoming what the world needs. Oftentimes, you look at the verse, we're in the world, not of the world. And, but but we, we are on a mission. We want to connect. We want to evangelize. We want to meet the people right there. At. But then we think that that equals a license to become like the world. It's not. Relevance is becoming what the world needs, not looking like the world. Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world. Do not be conformed to the societal norms. Do not be conformed to what is culturally acceptable. But be of a different kingdom. Be submitted to the Lordship of Jesus. I am preaching. Tired. I'm making sense. And today, no, I, I, I want to go right, right into the meat of my sermon. Today, I want to I speak on uh, two areas that I feel that the church, Christians in general, have done poorly in the response. Poorly in the response. And these areas, okay, they often review the maturity of the body of Christ in the world. And these two areas are crisis and controversy. Crisis and controversy. How the believer responds in crisis and controversy is often telling of how mature the believer is. Crisis and controversy. Crisis is often an opportunity for you to redefine who God is or for you to affirm your belief in God. Controversy is often an opportunity for you to redefine your belief in people or for you to affirm your belief in people. Say that again. Crisis is oftentimes an opportunity for you to redefine your belief in God or for you to affirm it. Likewise, controversy is oftentimes an opportunity for you to redefine your belief in people or to affirm it. Crisis and controversy. The way we respond to these things is often telling of how mature we are as Christians. It's often telling of how much the Lordship of Jesus has been manifested in our lives. This is my sermon title for this morning. My sermon title for this morning is this, Christ, Crisis, and Controversy. Christ, Crisis, and Controversy. And this is my my endeavor. My endeavor is for us to model what Christ would do in these situations. To, To display what the word of the Lord has commanded us to do. Like I mentioned earlier, there is what is culturally acceptable, what is the societal norm, what you could easily get away with because everyone else is doing it. 
And then there's the word of God. It doesn't... Just because most people are doing it doesn't mean it is right. Just because it is normal doesn't mean it is kingdom. Kingdom is defined by the word of God. Nothing else. And we ought to shift and align ourselves to the word of God, to the Lordship of Jesus. In crisis and controversy, we reflect Him. We become a light in that situation. And I'm going to read a a passage of scripture, and I believe this passage of scripture uh, gives us the tools, the response, the mindsets we ought to adopt pertaining to these two scenarios, crisis and controversy. Are you all with me? Okay, let's look at Romans 8. Romans 8, verse 24, it goes like this. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with patience we wait eagerly for it. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Next slide. And he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. I believe locked up in the passage of Scripture that we just read gives us are the tools, the mindsets, the heart postures that we ought to adopt pertaining to crisis and controversy. I want to talk about crisis for a start. And this is what I believe is the response of a believer in the face of crisis. In crisis, we wait patiently in hope. We wait patiently in hope. I know, it's just five words on the screen. It's not very powerful, but here's what I'm going to do now. I'm going to unpack every single one of these words. Not every single one. We. Not you, not me, but we. You know, um, I, uh, I chanced upon this Facebook video some time back and uh, it describes the uh, growth process of uh, a lobster. How many of you are familiar with lobsters? Yes? Lobsters. Lobster roll, big lobster. You know? Yeah. Lobsters are great. Um, it, here, here's, here's how a, a lobster grows. Okay, follow me. Okay, are you all with me? Yes? So a, a lobster, you know, he... Uh, he it... <laughs> I don't know any lobster. Sebastian, maybe? Uh, <laughs> Sebastian, right? Yeah, it's a little mermaid lobster. So the lobster has a shell, right? We all know lobster has a shell. And what happens to the lobster is as the lobster grows in size, the shell becomes too small for the lobster, right? And what happens is the lobster goes through a process of discomfort. It's like, oh my gosh, it's too tight. No, I... I can't grow beyond this thing, it's, it's too small. And what the lobster does, essentially, is the lobster goes to a, a, a place, you know, that is uh, out of sight, out of predators, and he actually sheds, okay? It sheds its, its shell, okay? And it's vulnerable for uh, a period of time, and then it grows a new set of shell, okay? And then it repeats the process over and over and over again until we have, like, a sizable lobster. 
So if you were tracking me, the lobster grew and it got uncomfortable in its shell and it had to shed that shell okay, in order to put on a new one. It got uncomfortable, discomfort, okay, and then he realized, okay, I, I, I need to do something, goes into hiding, sheds off the shell. What I'm saying to you this morning, its discomfort was its stimulus for growth. Its discomfort was what led to it growing. Many times we come into uncomfortable situations, scenarios, discomfort. It's not pleasant. And we look at it as the judgment of the Lord. We look at it as I'm in a crappy place, but not knowing that in that place of discomfort, it's my greatest opportunity for growth. In crisis, it's your greatest opportunity for growth. You can either redefine who God is or affirm your belief in Him. James chapter 1 verse 3, and this is the message version. I don't preach on this version often, but here goes. It says this, You know that under pressure, your faith life is forced into the open and shows its true colors. There is a, there's a famous preachy thing, preacher thing. You know, the preacher often goes, if I squeeze orange juice, I squeeze orange, I get orange juice. But when I squeeze a Christian, do I get Christ from it? I know. <laughs> Very like, ooh. If I squeeze orange, I know I get orange juice, but if I squeeze a Christian, why well, get Christ? You don't know, right? Oftentimes when we face pressure, you know, crisis, we, we often, you know, just completely forgo our values, our belief systems, or even our relationship with Jesus. I remember a story of a friend, you know, he was... Um, you know, uh, really praying into his O-level results. He was really praying to it, like, God, you're going to deliver me. And then he felt he got a word from the Lord. He was like, I'm going to do well for my O-levels. He was like, I'm going to do well for my O-levels. And this is a guy who was uh, five, six years in the Lord, right? pretty mature, solid guy. And he was like, God said to me that I will do well for my O-levels. He got back his O-level results, and he did, like, poorly. And at that moment, you know, I, I remember I was with him uh, that day. He was like, you know, I don't even think God exists. Yeah, like, how do you get here? You were like five, six years in the Lord. You're serving the worship team encounter. I saw you encountering God, but you, you because you didn't do well for all levels. You're like God doesn't exist. I don't know about you, but I'm certain that you know. I, I think for my life, I've 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 come into certain uh, uh, I, I I've come into moments like that. You know where I almost put God on hostage. Uh, in a hostage situation, like, God, unless you answer this prayer, this very thing I'm praying about, unless you do that, you don't exist. It's almost as though I take all my collective history of God, everything that He's done for me so far, His faithfulness, His goodness, His mercy toward me, everything here, and I take it and I put it on the altar. And I say, God, if you do not come through for me in this particular thing, I'm going to sacrifice this thing. Is that foolishness? Utterly foolish. But how many of you, you know, you don't have to raise up hands, but <laughs> I, I, I will raise up my hand. You have come to places like that and you're like, oh God, if you do not do this thing, you don't exist. In Christ, it's often telling of how much He has influenced your life. It's often telling of how much He has you. Christ is either 
affirms or redefines. Am I making sense? I want to go, go straight into it. We wait patiently in hope. In Psalm 37, it says this, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Most of us approach waiting as this. Waiting is a very passive thing. You do not have to do anything. You just kumbaya and the Lord will show up. But biblical waiting is this. The actual word used to describe waiting in the Bible, get ready, minds will be blown. The actual word that's used to describe waiting in the Bible, it comes from the kind of weight that you will associate with a hunter lying in the bushes waiting for his prey to show up. Waiting almost has a connotation of setting up an ambush. If a hunter actually sets up a trap, do you think the hunter is like, oh my gosh, like whatever happened, happened, you know? And just not involved in that whole thing. No, the hunter is actively engaging with what he set up. Follow me. Waiting is not passive, it's active. It's not passive, it's active. It demands your attention. Am I making sense? I often use this as a, as a similar illustration, but if I were to point at this thing here, okay, don't look up. And I ask you, okay, how many blocks are surrounding this box? Okay, most of you, I think, I think in fact all of you won't be able to tell me how many blocks are in this bulb thing because we have like random blocks all around. Very blocky pace. But we will all agree that this thing is in plain sight. When we walk in, we would have surely seen it. Yes? It's in plain sight. It's here, but we don't really know it's here. Here's what I want to I suggest to you. We rarely see what we're not looking out for. We rarely see what we're not looking out for. Some of you cry out for breakthrough, you cry out for deliverance, but you're not actively looking for it. And so when the Lord actually delivers you, when the Lord actually brings about breakthrough, you completely miss it. Some of us even expect the spectacular. It takes the same amount of God to heal a headache as it takes to heal cancer. Because of that, when God heals a headache, I need to celebrate as though God just healed cancer. Oftentimes we don't see the breakthrough because we're not looking out for it. And we're not recognizing it. Am I making sense? Okay. Have we turned to Bible yet? Okay. Bible verse. Matthew 11. Let's go. This is talking about uh, uh, John the Baptist. Okay. Matthew 11. I, I preached on this before. Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one or do we look for another? This is John the Baptist. He said, Are you the coming one? Are you the Messiah? Or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. This is John the Baptist. I don't know whether you're familiar with John the Baptist, but John the Baptist, as his name suggests, is the man who baptized Jesus. And when we read the scriptures, we know that John the Baptist was given this task. Find the Messiah and baptize him. And if you can picture, John's whole life just revolved around this central purpose, this central mission. Find a Messiah and baptize him. And it's, it, I know it's quite comical, but imagine him just dunking people in the water, push them down, bring that up. It's like, are you Jesus? You're not Jesus. Next. Push them down, bring that up. Are you Jesus? You're not Jesus. Next. 
And then the story goes on and John was doing his business one day and he sees the Messiah, he sees Jesus from afar and he goes, behold, the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. That is John the Baptist, a man of absolute faith, a man who is on an absolute mission. John the Baptist, great, great man. How did that guy come to this place where he was like, are you the Messiah? Are you even the Christ? Or do I wait for a coming one? Are you even the Christ? Or do I wait for a coming one? Have you ever wondered that? How, how did John the Baptist go to such a low place in the Lord? I think we can get some clues from the next verse I'm about to bring up to you. And this is Jesus' inaugural address in the temple. Luke chapter 4 verse 18 it says, this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Let's go back to the last slide. Where was John? John was in prison. What were the words of Jesus? He has come to bring freedom to those who are in prison. John was faced in a dilemma. His circumstance didn't match up to the word of God. And that led him to a place of unbelief and offense. How many of you can relate to that situation? How many of you can relate to that thing in your life? Some of you, okay, one year ago, you received a prophetic word. And currently, your life situation, your life circumstance doesn't match up to the word that was released to you. What do you do in that scenario? What do you do in the midst of crisis? Jesus then gives us the solution through his words to John. He says this, Jesus answered and said, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to him. Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Can I suggest to you that the best thing you can do for yourself in the midst of crisis is to feed yourself on what God is doing in your life, in the lives of people in the world. Feed yourself with the testimony of God's goodness in the midst of crisis. Am I making sense? Don't lose sight of what He is doing. I'm only on the first word, wait. <laughs> we wait patiently in hope. We're all familiar with Scripture in the Bible. It says, it says, through faith and patience, we inherit the promises of God. Patience, the word used there, translates to the words, staying power staying true to cause. If I can use a, a boat as an analogy, staying true to cause means that you keep the rudder of the boat, that which steers in a certain position, and you do not move it. Okay? To you, it might be insignificant. That's a small change. It's such a small thing. This is a huge vessel. I'm a huge person. Does that even change anything? But, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that a small change here, okay, if you actually let it play out through a certain distance, it can cause a major shift. A small shift in the rudder can cause the boat to go completely off course to a different course altogether. Sailor, am I right? Sailor says I'm right. It's a small change. Patience is that it's staying true to course. It's not wavering. It's not tinkering it around. It's staying true to what is kingdom? Not allowing the things around you to deter you, not allowing the things around you to define what your direction should be. 
God says this. God has said this. No matter what comes my way, I stay true to cause because He has said it. That's what patience looks like. Staying true to cause. I won't bring out that story, but I have a story in Judges 20. I, I won't put up the verse. And you know, it's, um, it's, it's, a, it's a battle of um, the children of Israel with the Benjamites. Long story. You go and read it yourself, Judges 20. But what strikes me about, what, what has struck me about the story is this. The children of Israel, when facing the Benjamites, the enemies, okay, they encountered two, vict- two devastating losses. They fought, they were destroyed, they fought, they were destroyed. And after each of those losses, okay, this is what the children of Israel did. They laid down their weapons and they went to God. And was like, God, we need a word from you. God, what shall we do in this situation? And God says to them, go again. And they went again. They fought and they lost. The third time, okay, after suffering two devastating losses, the children of Israel went to God again and was like, God, what shall we do? Shall we go up against the Benjamites again? And God said to them, Surely I will deliver them into your hands. Go again. And on the third time they went, they won. They destroyed the Benjamites. Here's what I want to suggest to you. The world, your flesh, defines success as a change in circumstance. The kingdom defines success as the willingness to pray again. Despite of loss, despite of circumstance, despite of crisis, I pray again. I believe God again. I do not allow these things to tell me who my God is. I go to His Word. Success is not a change in circumstance. It's a heart posture. It's the willingness to pray and depend on God again. It's that sound doctrine. Staying true to cause. That's why, you know, the Bible regards praise as a sacrifice. Sacrifice is what doesn't come naturally. It's what costs. If praise is always easy, then praise won't be regarded as a sacrifice. In your crisis, in the midst of your pain, is the opportunity to present to God an offering that is flavored with sacrifice. And you and I only have that opportunity to do so on this planet, on the earth, in this life. When we get to heaven, pain, the notion of pain is gone. No longer does it become a sacrifice. But on earth, faced with pain, faced with crisis, faced with circumstance, we get to offer God something that costs. Staying true to cause. Rejoicing when we don't feel like it. It's ironic to profess to be a people of faith and only be motivated by feeling. I don't feel like it. Yeah, you validate your feelings, but get over it. <laughs> I remember in in my in one of my um, you know I, I had some moments in my time in the U.S. and I remember I was feeling really down and just all around doubting the existence of God. You know, I'm sure we have moments like this. And I remember you know I was reading the Bible and I you know. And, I, and, you know, I think it's, it's a grace and it's, it's favor, but whenever I read the Bible, I, I find God in the Bible. It's just one of the primary ways I hear from, from God. I remember a season in my life where I just searched the scriptures and I just absolutely couldn't find it in the Bible. And it was just tearing me apart. 
remember chanting upon the scripture where it says that David danced before the Lord. And all of a sudden, like, I just felt this thing in me. And I was like, oh no. Oh dear Lord, no. <laughs> and I was like, why, of all, why all scriptures? But I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> and you, you just got to do what you got to do, you know. And so I remember like locking my, my bedroom door, you know, pulling down the blinds, you know, and, and just dancing, you know. And, huh? What I didn't do was I didn't rent my garments. My garments are still on. So do not have any weird imagery in it. But you know, it's, it's, it's staying true to cause, right? I believe joy, is, joy doesn't come when the circumstances change. True joy comes as a decision in the midst of circumstance. Jesus, for the joy so set before him, endured the cross. I don't think Jesus was particularly happy in that Joy doesn't come as a change in circumstance. It comes when you make a conscious decision in the face of crisis, in the face of circumstance. Like you do not get to dictate how I feel in this moment. That's what it looks like, you know, to stay true to cause. David says, this, says I, he said, I will bless the Lord at all times. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and, Lord, and let all that is within me bless His holy name. It's a decision. It's a choice. Amen. Okay, I want to move on. I have like 13 minutes left. No, that clock is 5 minutes left. 5 minutes fast. I have 18 minutes left. I want to talk about controversy. Everybody say controversy. Controversy. And, uh, and I hope I, I do an adequate job uh, presenting uh, my views on this. You know, we, we are all familiar, you know, and with Facebook world these days, like information just gets to people really fast, you know. And over the past one or two years, I have seen, um, you know, and, and these were really concerning and honestly really saddening, like, um, you know, from worship leaders and pastors that I really looked up to, to friends, to uh, fellow uh, ministry school uh, classmates. And, and these people, you know, uh, have fallen away from the Lord or have adopted a belief system to which I believe is downright unbiblical. You know, some of these men has, have, have fallen morally, uh, have, have uh, you know, extramarital affairs, you know, divorce, stuff like that, you know, and... And you know, Facebook just has a way of like getting that information to you, you know, and, and you're just confronted with all these things. But I, I think what is, you know, um, I wouldn't say fun, but what is like annoying about Facebook is that you don't just get news, but you get like comments, you know, attached to these news and you get to see people's perspective, people's responses to these things. And it's so concerning because I know for a fact that most of the negative responses and criticisms come from the church. Comes from the church. My suggestion to you is that we have done poorly, I would say collectively as a church, not just the church, the church, in responding to controversy. We've done absolutely uh, poorly, you know, not reflecting you know, our biblical values, not reflecting the standards of God. The formula to me, when it comes to controversy, for most people, it often looks like this. We disassociate, we move away from, or we cut ties and throw judgment to draw a line in the sand to prove that there is an us and them, that they are done and finished. The Bible uh, distinguishes two groups of people uh, in Jesus' days. There were the religious elite and the political elite. 
And the Bible accounts for the way these two groups of people respond in the midst of controversy. Pilate, when he was faced with a controversial figure in Christ, what did Pilate do? Pilate washed his hands in the basin, taking a step back, disassociating himself from Christ. The religious elite, what did the Pharisees do to illustrate their stand for righteousness and their disassociation from sin? They picked up stones from the ground and cast judgment. Predominantly, that's how we approach controversy. We either disassociate or we throw stones of judgment to illustrate that there is an us and them. Because our priority really is we need to look righteous. We need to appear right. We need to distinguish ourselves from them. Religious elite, political elite. But the question is, how did Christ respond to controversy? How did Christ respond to controversy? I'm often challenged by this verse in the Bible. And it says this, it says that the Pharisees spoke of Jesus in this manner. This Jesus is a sinner, a drunkard, and a glutton because he fellowships with them. This Jesus, he's a sinner, he's a drunkard, he's a glutton because he fellowships with these people, because he's associated with them. Here's what I want to suggest to you. I want to suggest to you that Jesus' priorities are vastly different from the church's priorities today. The church's priorities today is that we need to look right. Jesus' priority is that they need to feel loved and accepted. Me needing to appear righteous falls way below on the priority list. In controversy, there's, there's this natural inclination. We disassociate, we judge. But Christ in the midst of controversy, in the midst of controversial figures, presented love and unconditional acceptance that is not predicated on their willingness to change. The church has gotten really good at standing up against sin, but have done poorly in sitting down with sinners. It's time to get our priorities right. It's time to be known less for who we are against, but who we are for. Am I making sense? I want to turn to a passage of scripture. John chapter 4. It's a long passage. Follow me and I'll land this plane shortly. It's, uh, it's talking about Samaritan woman. You're all familiar with story. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Stop there. The Samaritans to the Jews were like second-class citizens. They hated them, they ostracized them, they did not like them. The Jews were second-class to the Romans, the Samaritans were second-class to the Jews. The Samaritans were a really hated group of people. That's why Jesus said what he did, okay? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Next verse, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Next slide. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew, eh? Okay, down. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water spring up into everlasting life. Next slide. 
The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here again. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you are now with have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. Next slide. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worship on this mountain. And Jews said that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father you will worship. You do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. Catch this. But the hour is coming and now is where the worshippers, true worshippers, will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. I know that's a chunk of scriptures, but I want you to understand the context of this story. I've said earlier before, Samaritan people were really hated people group in that day. Okay? Not only that, she was a woman. And we must understand this about being a woman living in Jesus' days. A woman had virtually next to no rights in that day. Over a hundred of the laws that were written in the Torah were anti-woman. Women couldn't even sit in the presence of uh, uh, teaching. They couldn't even sit at the dining table. They had to sit on the floor. They always had to be serving uh, the male figures of the household. Women had no rights. When Jesus said to her, you have had five husbands, Jesus wasn't pointing out her sin. He was pointing out her rejection because this is a fact that women in that day were not permitted to divorce their husbands. Only the husbands divorced the wife. And so you have a woman who has been rejected five times. Oppressed. Hated. as a Samaritan. And so you have a lady who reject, rejected, hated, oppressed. Okay? People had no regard for her. But yet Jesus in that last verse presents to her the premier revelation of what worship is. It's the premier revelation of what it means to worship. And then she, the Bible accounts, will go on to become the first evangelist going into towns speaking about Jesus. What is my point? God's story is always a redemptive story. God is in the business of redemption. If your response or answer to controversy is not one of redemption, then you have missed the point. In controversy, we believe for God's redemptive plan. I have a friend who does prison ministries. You know, and he will take a, a really cheap Bible. I don't know where this falls in your theology, but he will take a really cheap Bible and he would uh, look upon a crowd of prisoners, most of them murderers, most of them uh, you know, in prison for life, and he takes up the Bible and it's like, you think you will amount to nothing? I have a Bible here, and I'm going to rip out the pages of the Bible that were written by murderers. And he rips out the first five books of the Bible. He rips out most of the Psalms written by David. And then he rips out 13 books of the New Testament written by Paul. And then you have a really thin Bible. Maybe one that some of you might read for a change. I don't know where that came from, I'm sorry. <laughs> But you, you see, you haven't even started with like other fellows in the Bible that, that did things wrong. 
God's story is always a story of redemption. In controversy, we believe for God's redemptive plan, a redemptive story. Am I making sense? Uh, I, I want to end our time together with talking about something that um, we are currently facing as, as a nation. I want to talk about political controversy. Government and the church's response to politics. Here's what I want to say to us this morning before we close. Unsanctified speculation will always lead to bad beliefs. Unsanctified speculation will always lead to bad beliefs. Do I believe that it is unbiblical to voice our opinions and concerns? No, I don't. But I believe that there is a time and place for that. I believe that it is okay in the post, but when a person or government is in authority, we are then presented with a very clear set of instructions from the Bible. Romans 13 verse 1 says this, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. To come against the governing authorities is to come against the Lord Himself. It's to function in an anti-Christ spirit. That's a tough verse to swallow. In the Bible, there are repeated occasions of godly men abiding by the principle of obeying and honoring their ruler despite some quite unpleasant circumstance. Think of David refusing to kill King Saul, Daniel serving a series of volatile, violent Persian kings. Jesus himself admonished his followers to offer honor to Caesar with their taxes. When then is opposition acceptable? Scripture says it's justified rebellion when obeying the law means disobeying God. Peter and the apostles in the face of Jewish officials trying to stop them from teaching the word of God stood their ground. Obadiah, the head of King Ahab's palace, rescued a hundred prophets from Jezebel's wrath. Daniel would not bow down to an idol of a king, even though he was commanded to do so. In other words, for a Christian, there's a very, very high threshold that needs to be satisfied before civil, civil disobedience is justified. What if we think we see better systems of governments, uh, governance or democracy democracy in other countries that Singapore could borrow from? What if we don't like what we deem to be the manner of politicking that allowed a political appointment to take place? The Bible still doesn't just say that that justifies rebellion or even a reluctance to submit. First Timothy, I know we, we read this verse often uh, uh, in Facebook because everyone is quoting it now. It's like the it verse. First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. First of all, first of all, what, is, what takes priority, what takes precedence is this verse. And if we notice in this verse, it, it, it mentions the word thanksgiving. By then we can assume that the nature of prayer that's mentioned in this set of scripture is drastically different from the kind of prayer that most of us have been engaging in. We do not pray against our leaders, we pray for them. Our time of intercession cannot be a time of airing our political uh, disagreement and things that we're not happy with the government. Lord, change this man. Lord, change this government. Lord, change the way they view this policy. That is not the kind of prayer that we, were, we are admonished to do in Scripture. It says this, with prayers, petitions, and thanksgiving, we pray for, not against. It's time for us to reevaluate our priorities. Is our priority this? For us to be proven right. Or for them to succeed at their job and succeed 
in prospering the nation. Most of us take delight in them failing, not knowing that their failure leads to the nation's failure. So what if it's uh, he, she, or whoever is an incompetent person? Are we going to say, yeah, you know, I'm just going to wait for that person to mess up, and then, yeah, I'm proven right, and I'm a prophet. What is our priorities? Are we after being proven right, or are we after the nation prospering? To accuse my leaders, I need to, on purpose, take myself out of my God-given mandate and assignment to pray and protect my leaders and align with he who is the accuser of the brethren. I've said it before, complaining isn't the same as intercession. Complaining is to the devil what worship is to God. When we choose not to pray for our leaders as a church collectively, we remove any form of divine influence over that person. And when we remove divine influence, how many of you know that the demonic, the kingdom of darkness wants influence? When we remove divine influence, can I suggest to you that that person will become the very embodiment of who he says he is? If you say he's the Antichrist and you pull away prayer support, my suggestion to you, he will be an Antichrist figure. When we remove prayer, remove any form of divine influence and counsel that can influence that individual. That making sense? Think of Daniel serving the courts of Nebuchadnezzar. That name always makes me laugh because I remember I went to Coffee Bean once and told a barista that my name was Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> I was 17. And the person was like, oh, okay. I was like, oh, the person never asked me for spelling. I got my cup. It just had a, has the letter N on it. <laughs> so, <laughs> you can try, uh, see? So, I don't know. Don't try. Don't try. <laughs> I believe the story of Nebuchadnezzar's conversion stands as, okay, one of the most radical conversions ever in history. Evil, evil king, narcissistic completely self-absorbed. At the end of his life, Nebuchadnezzar says this, and at the end of time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me and I blessed the Lord Most High and praised Him and honoured Him who lives forever. How did this happen? Daniel was loyal to his assignment, never condoned sin, never sacrificed values. He served really well and became a light in the midst of darkness. Can I suggest to you that the way we approach controversy, political controversy specifically, is we do not partake in that which is the political spirit, disassociating ourselves, that which is the religious spirit, that which casts stones of judgment, but we partake in what is kingdom, and kingdom looks like serving, kingdom looks like being about the Lord's business, kingdom looks like my values, my responses, what I say, what I pray, aligning with the way Heaven sees it. That's how we change a nation. That's how we respond to political controversy. Can we stand?